I mean, I, I had such an unusual story in the sense that you don't, not many people sort of spring out of high school and kind of immediately get the attention of the country, you know, for their first idea, you know. I mean, that that was amazing. I mean, it, it got very hard. I'm not in, not in any way, shape or form did I have an easy story. But having understood straight away that things that aren't probable can be possible. I mean, that's just given me an energy that I feel so, I mean, it makes me want to cry. I just feel so privileged to have. Today, Poppy King, founder of the game-changing Australian-born beauty brand Lipstick Queen and author of the popular book Lessons of a Lipstick Queen, might just remind you of the Roald Dahl version of Willy Wonka. But the real story is how at just seven years old, a determination was sparked in her that led her to become one of Australia's first well-known entrepreneurs, built an $8 million business by the time she was 19, all during a bad economic recession and without investors or a formal business education, but with a phone book as a surprisingly important resource. When the time was right, she sold her business and became an executive at Estee Lauder to learn the corporate ropes. And now she's launching a new brand. Poppy has worked as hard and sacrificed as much as anyone. And yet she looks at her own story like a bit of a fairy tale. Coming up, you'll hear Poppy Unplugged sharing insights and stories she's never been able to talk about before, including the aha moment that motivated Poppy to create and help other women. The detective work typical for successful entrepreneurs. How Poppy went viral before social media and before going viral was actually a thing. The important difference between follower and customer. Why she wanted to leave her stint as an intrapreneurista at Estee Lauder after just two weeks, but stayed for three years. How understanding that the possible isn't always probable has given her energy. And the power and joy of letting go of results. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Poppy, thank you so much for being here this morning. I'm so excited to dig into your full story and how you started your business. You were 18 years old. I was. I know. It's almost 30 years ago now. Yeah, I can say, yes, it's amazing. So take me back to that time. You're 18 years old. You're in high school. In Australia. In Australia, yes, of course. (laughs) The beautiful accent. (laughs) What gave you that umph and vision to start your own business that young? Well, it really was a sort of a series of um, sort of cataclysmic, <laughs> cataclysmic events, however you say that, um, you know, in terms of I think it started when I was very, very young um, and I first put on lipstick. So the real beginnings of my entrepreneurial kind of venture really started when I was seven and I put on lipstick um, and I was always playing dress-ups and doing things like that. But the dress-ups and the clothes kind of changed me on the outside. Lipstick was the first experience I had with something that made me feel transformed on the inside. Like it changed what I thought of myself on the inside, not, not just the outside. And that was a very profound experience, almost like a superhero mm-hmm. cape. So really that sort of profound experience, and I think you'll find in any kind of entrepreneur's story, you know, whether they're big, small, there's a sort of profound experience at some point, usually in your childhood, that ultimately leads to it. So that was the sort of ultimate, that was the profound experience was the the discovery of lipstick as a, as a mind-altering substance, something that could make me feel different, not just look different, but feel different. And you're seven years old at this time. And I'm seven years old, so of course I didn't have the words, although, you know, to sort of say it like that, but it just really – I and I was going through a very difficult – unfortunately, my father was dying very tragically very young from cancer. He was only 38 when he was diagnosed. And my mother – so that left us in a very difficult financial situation because, you know, my parents weren't really planning on, you know – My mother wasn't planning on being a single mother at 40 with two young kids. So she sort of took over the breadwinner role after that. So it was a difficult, it was a time of a lot of harsh realities for a little girl. And lipstick was just almost like this kind of portal into, you know, a kind of into a whole different world. And it really, it really became very much a part of my kind of 
you know, of my psyche was the idea that there was this product out there that you could put on and suddenly you felt strong enough to do things that you didn't feel strong enough to do without it. You know, it was a, um, so that really sort of solidified in me, you know, around that time. I didn't really think of lipstick again until I got to my sort of teenage years and uh, we're talking mid-80s. I was a teenager in Melbourne, Australia. We've also got to remember if it's even possible for people to think of this, that this was pre-internet. So if you're in Australia, it was a pretty isolated place, like from America and Europe. And, you know, like you're in, you're in a different, literally in a different part of the world. So it wasn't like trends and everything like that happened as quickly as they do now. Um, and the Australian idea of beauty when I was a teenager was very, very, uh, for women, was very sort of outdoorsy-based, beach-based, Elle McPherson, you know, I don't know if any of these names, but, you know, oh, sporty yeah. beach, you know, very Anglo-Saxon, you know, a lot of things that I'm not. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I felt like many teenagers do, really disenfranchised with the beauty standards. And But then what I thought, like I'd, I'd look at myself, and I would look at the magazines and I think, oh, I don't like the way I look compared to the magazines. Then I would sort of go to art galleries or whatever and I'd see all sorts of other ideas of female beauty and think, okay, well, that's more. I can kind of see myself reflected more in that. Like that feels more doable for me than the, the standards at a cosmetic counter. So I sort of went to the world of art as a teenager to try to sort of like, you know, figure out, you know, how to make the best use of, of my own look even if they weren't conventional, you know. And um, it was really through that that I sort of like started to realise that it was other eras that I loved. You know, I loved the 30s and the 40s and that as much as like, and, and that when I looked at movies like uh, the classic movies, I could really see not only aesthetically but spiritually in the sort of characters of Lauren Bacall and, you know, whatever the, you know, I could really see a sort of archetype of female that really felt for me what I was wanted, like versus at the time it was the 80s, there was the power woman. It's like, no, I don't, no thanks. <laughs> I don't want the, you know, I'll, I'll take the 40s shoulder pads, not the 80s shoulder pads, you know. <laughs> um, you know, so, um, but anyway, it was, and really it was around all of this time I was finishing up high school that all this was sort of in my, like in my mind, still not formed into a business idea. I mean, I'm not from a wealthy family, no one in my family knows about business. So no, you know. no one was an entrepreneur in your family? Well, my mother is a designer. Okay. So she's on and and also uh, importantly, which I will, will explain in, you know, is I was around a very creative background, but I didn't really have, I was more around artists and painters and writers, sort of more bohemia, sure. not really kind of corporate. So no one had know. that business sense? No, no one had that, no one had that business sense. No. My father was a psychiatrist, mm. so, <laughs> you know, an Freudian analyst, so I don't know. Um, so I've probably got more Freudian analysis in me than business sense but in, in what I do. Which helps in business. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, certainly uh, certainly has somewhat of an advantage, I guess. But, you know, I have a lot of problems with Freud. Um, anyway, <laughs> as a woman, I have a lot of problems with Freud. Um, anyhow, so, uh, so I really, really was sort of towards the end of high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do um, in terms of career-wise. I really hadn't kind of put a lot of focus in school. I put much more focus in extracurricular activities um, and really sort of found myself at the end of high school a little bit kind of lost. I kind of, I don't know what I want to do Um and very, very interested in fashion and creativity, but not in any particular way that was sort of clear to me. So when I finished high school, I just uh, decided to um, – well, I worked in this beautiful lingerie store. And during that time, I really had identified that what I was really looking for for me, just for me only, was 1940s-style lipsticks. So lipsticks that were matte – not shiny, which at this time in 1989, 1990, everything was sort of blue-based, shiny, mm. for a coral, every red went pink. Like you couldn't get browns and murky reds and oxbloods and the colours that I saw on TCM movies, you know. Um, so I realised that that's exactly – so it became clear to me after being just a nebulous thought, where is lipstick that suits me? It became clear exactly what – and I still wasn't thinking about it like a business until 
I uh, was asking, you know, during the sort of time of working the lingerie store, not really knowing what I'm going to do, um, I asked uh, at a counter, as I often did, do you have any MASH lipsticks, you know, lipsticks that are not shiny? In, and um, in this particular, most of, the, most of the time the counter person would say, oh, yes, and show me something that was completely shiny. Yes. <laughs> it's like, no, no, not quite. Um, <laughs> you know, um, and, um, but this person this time said, uh, said, you know what, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me for a matte lipstick these days, I would be rich. And, and, you know, and it wasn't so much the idea of the I would be rich that kind of struck me in that moment. What really struck me was, of course, if I'm looking for them, it's not like, I, you know, there must be other women who sure. want a sort of 1940s style lipstick, you know. So that's really, really how, you know, it kind of is a whole progression. It's not, it's very different to people that end up in business school where they know they want it. I ended up in business because I knew what I wanted to do. Yes. I didn't end up doing what I wanted to do because I wanted to be in business. So it's a very different gestation period. So how did you go from that moment when you really had this aha, I need to help create this and help other women to actually launching the business? What was your first step then? So my first step, and it's always it's funny because I actually have written a book called Lessons of a Lipstick Queen, which is about how to recognize a good idea when you have it and what to do. And I, and I explain in the book how this is always the one where people just, they ask me this as if it's like, what magic did you employ to find? And I, it almost, it feels so funny to tell you that I looked in the phone book. Like, so basically, you know, this is the thing. Like a lot of entrepreneurship is about very simple steps yep. that end up with big changes. I came home and I thought, I wonder if you can, if there's a factory that makes lipsticks that I could approach about making matte lipsticks, you know. and So simple. So simple. <laughs> there, like I said, I mean, we really, there was no, there was no Google then. There was no, you know, and actually it's scary to think I probably would have had a completely different life if there was Google because I often think back to that moment. If there was Google in that moment, I just would have come home or not even come home now. I would have just Googled matte lipsticks. And at that time that would have told me that, that a company called Mac <laughs> existed. I mean, I didn't know in Australia, you know, but it would have that had some matte lipsticks. So I didn't, I was part of an overall indie beauty wave yeah. that I didn't realise because I was isolated. But so, so, um, so you think about it, my life would have taken a different turn. But what I, so I came back and I, my, my process really was, I thought, well, like, well, I wonder how you get lipsticks made. I thought I'll look up lipstick factories. So I got out like the ballot, like the yellow pages at the time, you know. Was there something that said lipstick? No, there wasn't. And and there wasn't something that said, but I really, I did. I mean, I was that sort of naive. It's like lipstick factory, you know, and I had all these sort of ideas. It's like James Bond style lipstick factory. And you're 18 at the time now, 19? Yeah, 18. And, um, and uh, so I realised, no, that's, there's no things. This. So, I, so I then looked up cos- – so then my mind went to, okay, well, cosmetic manufacturers, they were t- found a lot of names under that. They weren't names that kind of were very clear as to what they did. They were kind of like Alliance Chemicals or, you know what I mean? It wasn't like they kind of like – so I started just going down, ringing, 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 um, saying, hello, I'm interested to know if you make lipstick. No, we make hair care. You know, I'm interested in – and then one, I hit on one that said, no, we don't make lipstick but this group does. And it kind of went from there. Like I found the factory that could do it before I found anything else. And I think that that step – just the simplicity of that step is really then like kind of what launched me into putting every other bit of the piece together. Over the next year and a half, I had to find I had to find financing because I didn't have financing. I'm 18. I've got no MBA. I've got no. I mean, I've got barely got a high school degree. Were you taken seriously when you would have these meetings? Um, well, I didn't go to I didn't go to um, banks. I knew I wasn't. Yeah. I knew I had no hope of getting banks. So I knew what. So what I went towards was more of how did I look at getting a grant or some sort of you know kind of goodwill development you know I knew a lot of a lot of companies at the time Australia was in a really bad recession so it was in a very bad place economically so companies were sort of investing in in the idea of sort of you know of kind of start new business start startups and things like that um, but I was just extremely it was just unusual to be in the lipstick business but so I was sort of looking more at how I could get grants or government assistance or some kind of I knew that the traditional venture capital world even though I didn't know have those 
that language. Right. But I just knew enough. I mean, I, I'd, I'd come up against conservative people enough in my life at that point to know that, that I'd have to think of a creative way of doing this. And it was in the process of doing that, of sort of thinking, how can I kind of almost like a fairy tale? Like, how can I kind of find the fairy tale element here that will get this magic happening? And uh, in the process of applying for so many different things and so many different ways of coming at it, and um, I had to put together a business plan. And in the process of putting together a business plan to sort of show what my idea was to bring out in Australia some matte 1940s style matte lipsticks um, and in that process I was asking a lot of advice going to a lot of meetings that ended up going nowhere you know um, but one of those meetings was with somebody who ended up deciding they were so impressed that they would be my business partner so you know there it really was a case of like you only need one person to say yes you know it really was one of those cases or, or, or what they say as luck being preparedness meets opportunity, you know, it really was very much preparedness met opportunity. <laughs> so what happened next? So now you're... So what happened next? How long, how long have we got? <laughs> we got, we got time. Um, uh, so what happened next? Um, let me try and speed it up because this is, you know, there's just so much since that too. So basically what happened next is I really did put it all together. So I found a business partner, I found the manufacturers and how I did this, I mean, because I teach entrepreneurship at FIT, I'm a guest teacher at FIT. So the best way to explain how I did that process was that I thought about it backwards. So instead of looking at where I was, like, okay, I found a manufacturer and I found finance. How do I get it into at the time stores were a big deal? You know, I went to the stores, like the department stores and, you know, and looked at what all the cosmetic counters had and kind of made a list like, okay, they all seem to have display units. They also, like I looked at the end of the line, like what does the destination look like? That told me what I needed to do. Otherwise I wouldn't have known what I even needed. Sure. But I went, just went to counters and looked at what everybody else had. They've got testers to test the lipstick. They've got display units. They've got people selling it. They've got like, so obviously this is what I'm going to need to put into place. Yes. <laughs> you know? So again, the kind of simplicity of my thinking uh, was, was, was really useful again in that situation. And so, and it took me, once I saw sort of found financing and that was really a process that sort of, you know, there are two ways to get financing for a startup venture. It's either institutional money through a VC or through or friends and family. So this sort of falls under the friends and family in the sense that it was somebody who was very impressed with my entrepreneurial vision and what I'd found, the fact that I'd found a factory already and all that kind of stuff. So that, um, so I, so once, so, so they also helped me to a certain extent. We just put all the pieces together in the first year and a half. And with, by the time March 1992 came, uh, came around, I had, uh, seven lipsticks named after the seven deadly sins coming to the market. So there was lust, envy, decadence, avarice, indolence. Instead of sloth, I'd change it to indolence. Um, and um, uh, anger and vanity. Um, and so it was very fun, the marketing that I did. And they were seven, just seven matte lipstick shades under the brand name Poppy. Uh, and I instead of and just a small run, I think we did like a thousand of each or something, you know, at the factory. And uh, I picked them up in my own car, put them in the trunk of my own car. Um, and um, I had convinced instead of taking it to department stores or you know or traditional cosmetic selling places, where how was I going to tension with seven lipsticks in amongst Lauder and Longcom sure. and all the brand, you know. You know, um, I decided instead to approach some of my favourite sort of boutiques, so really cool sort of fashion boutiques, independent boutiques, to have the seven lipsticks on the counter, like jewellery or sort of something. And I managed to convince a couple of them to do that. Then I thought, okay, well, so now I've got a couple of stores that are selling it. Um, now how are people going to need to know about yes. it? So, okay, so now I've got to get people to know about how do I do that? So I thought, well, I've got to get it into the magazines. How do I do that? So I um, just, it was like a pro, and so I sent it off to, I sort of figured out how to read on the masthead, who the editor was. So, you know, it was, it was like a Nancy Drew at this point. It was just really you were the kind of. entrepreneur detective. <laughs> you know, exactly. And like, I think any, any, any entrepreneurista will tell you that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sort of super sleuth work involved. And I really, you know, I sort of, um, so I really sort of went about it like that until I had it all, finally had it all sort of in pieces, uh, put together, the pieces put together. 
And then really what happened next was really something that really you can't really prepare for or count on. It's sort of something you hope for. Um, and that is it just got really picked up by the media. Like once I had one article, I think uh, Australian Vogue did a little piece about me, tiny little piece. They picked it up, you know, a young girl couldn't find lipstick she liked, so she started her own lipstick company. It just got – because also Australia is a much smaller country, you know, population-wise, a big country land-wise but small population-wise, it also broke into news media very quickly. So it went out of fashion pages into general news, like kind of a, a young girl, you know, the the recession is here, but a young, plucky young girl has started her own you, you know. So you became really an instant celebrity. So, well, I became – I mean, I sort of became instantly well-known. Yeah. You know, I don't – like in Australia, like we hadn't really had fee female entrepreneurs before. We had actresses, we had uh, sports, certainly sports heroes, you know, famous, you know, philanthropists, like every other scientist, whatever, but not really female entrepreneurs. So it was kind of a, a very new territory for Australia as well. And so it really just, so financially and in every way took off very, very quickly. So the beginnings were not the hard part for me. And that's often, you know, that I had a sort of an opposite story. Like I sort of got it up and out and running and successful really quickly. Um, which is not always the case. Sure. What really, what was really the hard part was then knowing what to do with that success when it had happened so quickly um, in terms of the structure and the sort of capital. I mean, again, all the words I'm saying now are words that I've learned since. You sure. have to understand like at 19 I had an $8 million business or whatever, you know, with my brother and me sort of, doing it you know like it, it happened much much faster and sort of then understanding what to do with that um was really when it went when it got was really where where we became the big challenge do you think these type of success stories can happen now where it happened so fast for you oh definitely i mean i think they can happen actually easier um in terms of you know now you can you know because of social media director you can have things flare up so much faster i but what i don't think is as as um easy to achieve now. I think you can achieve things faster, but it's holding people's attention. I think back then, even back when I, and I know we'll get to Lipsy Queen, this is just my first company we're talking about, you know, Lipsy Queen I launched in 2006, so in New York, you know, so, but like, you know, even back in, even 2006, you know, like the, 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 the ability to really have an ongoing, like having a follower and having a customer are two yep. different things. You and you can get followers, but it's still really hard to get customers, you know, and the investment community sort of just assumes that followers equals customers and they don't. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's in many ways you can go faster, but you kind of like anything fast, you sort of burn fast and burn bright and burn out now. Um, whereas back when I started, my story was very unusual. I almost had like a, you know, a social media story before there was yeah. social media, sure. you know, so, you know, um, it was almost like I went viral before or you could go viral, you know. So, um, so, so I think that now there's just all sorts of different challenges, and it's fascinating for me, absolutely fascinating and quite unexpected to be at this point in 2019, just in the process of launching again my own independent lipstick brand, third time round, um, you know, but to be doing the exact same mission of making incredible, magic, nuanced, intelligent, feminist lipsticks that I did wanted to do when I was 18, you know, kind of like, like kind of to be doing that in a whole different century, like the same thing, like my mission hasn't changed, absolutely Everything else has changed, like the entire landscape, retail, how the customer. And it's really interesting to be able to see some of the, th the thing that I'm really happy to sort of report back is the canary down the mine shaft. What hasn't changed is to, to really capture the emotional connection of a female customer. I don't know. I've never sold really to men, but you, you, you ha cannot underestimate how genuine you really need to be to really hold, some, you know, you like it's a bit of like fool me 
once or whatever that saying shame is. On you. Yeah. you know, for <laughs> me twice, shame on me. Like kind of like like it's not you can't just go out there with snake and with snake oil. Like you really you know, if you really want if you really want that beauty customer, you really have to be genuinely bringing something to the table now. It's not enough just to be just to be a celebrity. I mean I, I would be interested to know how Lady Gaga's range went. I don't know. I, I never. I didn't really get a sense. I don't really read trade magazines. But in terms of, I think this kind of wave of celebrity makeup um, is coming to a close. A bit like there was a wave of celebrity fragrance. I think now it's much more going to be. I think. I think what who we need to emerge in the beauty landscape is heroes yeah. more so than even entrepreneurs, but heroes. And I think you know the product is so important. Because yes, you can put a celebrity name on any type of cosmetics. Many cosmetics are made in the same factory. It's the same product over yes. and over again. It's who has the better marketing for to get that initial customer. But then it's. If you want someone to keep using the product, you if need good products. You absolutely do. I mean, that's the thing that kind of like I've never understood. And when I joined the corporate world, so to sort of segue into sort of from Poppy. So Poppy I had for 10 years in Australia, based in Australia in the 90s, all in the 90s. So again, if I wanted to speak to the Barney's buyer in Australia in the 90s, I had to set my alarm and wake up. Like there was no email yeah. when I first started. Like it was so it really was, it really was, um, you know, it really was a very different time. So in the 90s, I had Poppy based in Australia, but it was always selling to cult stores in London and New York, like Barney's and, you know, like had it great, but, but never really, the business never really was able to sort of move from being an Australian-based business to a more global business. And in, and in that way, a lot of new competition came in, like Urban Decay and Hard Candy in the, in the, in the US, and then they got bought by bigger companies. And so the long and short of it is that really I sort of kind of fell behind um, in terms of sort of keeping up with the competition um, from the resources perspective. I didn't sell to a bigger company like all my competition did. Max sold to Lauder, this Bobby Brown sold to Lauder, this one that sold to this one, this one. And so I just really, being based in Australia and undercapitalised, I just really couldn't compete that much internationally. So I focused on the Australian market and I'd had some ups and downs there and I didn't, by the time 2002 was around, so exactly 10 years, I launched in 1992, this is 2002, um, I didn't actually own my company anymore. I was still sort of the figurehead and the, you know, but there'd been some sort of backroom dealings <laughs> that uh, found me in a in a place where I was more kind of like the figurehead but not really the in the ownership of it and it was at that time that I got a very intriguing in, we did have email by this point a very intriguing email from um, the offices of the Estee Lauder Corporation shall we say somebody very senior there <laughs> Um, saying they were interested to meet with me and I came over and met with them and as it turns out, this person had identified me as somebody that they wanted to relocate to New York to work for them in their corporation, Estee Lauder, uh, and had a role in mind for me and that's what happened. So they bought my company, Estee Lauder bought my company from the owners in Australia so I could so we could close it wow. and they could move me, relocate me to work full-time for them. So they basically, it was like changing studios. It was like, you know, going from MGM to Paramount or something, you know. Um, and uh, so that's what, so so that's what, that's not, a lot of this is not public in my, if you Google me, you don't see this, but that's because I really have, I'm only now really kind of telling the full story because I am i don't have any responsibilities to anybody where I can't share this information. So I'd like to share All the right. full story. Well, we're going to get more into it. <laughs> Coming up, you'll hear Poppy share why she wanted to leave Estee Lauder after just two weeks, but stayed anyway. Poppy, so now you moved to New York City, yeah. you started this new role. I can't imagine what it would be like to have been running your own business and now you're an employee somewhere else. What was that like? It was pretty um, – I mean, I don't know whether anybody listening is going to be old enough to know these references, but there were two things like Freaky Friday. There was a movie, yes. Freak, where you switch plate, where they some mother and daughter, and also Working Girl, where Melanie Griffith came to. So it really – thank God for those kind of movies because that was the prism through which I saw it because all of a sudden I was a vice president. I was 30 and I was a vice president at a major American beauty corporation, having never – 
ever. Like the last job I'd had was when I was 18 at the laundry yeah. store. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and look, there was a lot of knocks and bumps being an entrepreneur in my, in the, in my 20s. So it's not like I'd had a, an easy ride, but I just hadn't been in the corporate world ever right. before. Now, suddenly I'm not only in the corporate world, I'm kind of at a very senior level with a job that was created for me. So not actually, it wasn't like I was slipping into a role that had a clear mandate. What was this title that you It was you? the Vice President of Creative Marketing. So okay. it wasn't, it was like, in, I, I floated between every discipline, product development, in-store activity, like I was anything to do with sort of articulating the brand from lipsticks to language, so like I kind of was like, and then, there were, you know, I was sort of this floating role of sort of the sort of the voice, the impresario, I guess, was what, you know, they wanted me to be for a prescriptive. So I would do in-store as well as go in lab. You know, I, I was a, it was a very unusual role for the Lauder Corporation because it was multidisciplinary. Um, and anyway, so I so it was it was something that just was a complete, total kind of culture shock to me on every level, which in retrospect I'm glad it was because I think the total – sort of upside downness of it to my entrepreneurial sort of bootstrapping world uh, meant that I just kind of opened my mind, didn't try to bring my ways of doing things to, and really sort of opened my mind to see, okay, how can I be of use to this corporation that's gone to a lot of trouble to get me, you know, over here. And really, ultimately, I kind of knew, I mean, to, in all honesty, I really knew within about two weeks that it really was not the right environment for me, you know, that it was just not my natural habitat, that it just kind of wasn't really something that I was going to find a real sense of purpose around or kind of like I kind of knew it. Um, but, you know, I also really, really wanted to understand it a little bit more before just turning away from it. And so it took me – so, and I think – I, I was there, so I stayed for three years, and I really, you know, that's a good amount of time after yeah. two weeks. That yeah, wasn't for you. Yes, you know, kind of like I really, I really stayed because I really wanted to learn. I wanted to really see what it was all about. I think ultimately, and I also wanted to try to make it work. I think ultimately, why. I just realized there was nothing, there was no sort of seniority, there was nothing in that situation that where I was going to have the same values as the corporate world in beauty because, you know, the entire corporate, and I'm not just blaming one corporation, all of them, it's, you know, the further, the higher up you are, so the more fundamental in decision-making you are, the less you've had to do with the customer. So I'm de- so all the people that I'm dealing with, and I'm again, this is, I'm not singling out any one corporation, all the people that I'm dealing with when it comes to things that people are putting on their faces, like, this is an intimate product, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, yes. this is, like have really... If you're senior, you don't really, you haven't really had much exposure to those people. You know, the people who, only the junior people, the people at the county. And that to me is just such a topsy-turvy world that I could, it was almost like I was dyslexic. Like I couldn't kind of understand. And it's just not for me, you know. So I kind of ultimately realised I'm not going to be able to change that. And then it Did you try? I did try. I went through different phases. I went through a sort of, you know who Michael Moore is, that yes, kind of yes, t- whistleblower? Yes. I went through a sort of Michael Moore phase where I was like, you people are crazy, like trying to. Then I sort of like calmed that down. Then I went through another phase of sort of like more sort of like just being, you know, sort of like surreptitiously provocative. You know, I mean, I went through all sorts of different sort of phases with it um, and ultimately just kind of realised that, you know, it really, there, it really for me was not what I considered the customer, the customer, my boss. That's who I've always considered my boss. No matter what investors I've had, no matter like to me, I report to the customer in the corporate world, you don't. And I just couldn't, I couldn't make that work. I just on any level. And it do, obviously it works. I mean, these corporations make billions. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I know something they don't. It's just, I couldn't make it work. And then also, Another thing happened around that time was lipstick was going away, right? So I was in a lot of stores on my corporate role doing personal appearances and trend shows at Nordstrom and in middle America, you know, not just in the east and west coast. Um, And 
it was it during it was sort of like the height of sort of Jennifer Aniston, Friends, kind of that look being sort of you know kind of really prevalent. You know, Bobby Brown, mm. you know that you know that kind of thing. And I was sort of coming up to women in stores all around America, sort of with wearing red lipstick, and women were saying, "Oh, I love the way you wear red lipstick," but I could never do it. And it was this there was this sort of shyness and this kind of misunderstanding about lipstick that almost felt like women were sort of giving up on it because they felt it was aging or they didn't feel they could pull it off or like this sort of under this idea that you have to wear a full face of makeup if you wore lipstick and so I sort of went back out you know with Lipstick Queen when I left Estelora I wasn't necessarily intentionally going to go back into my own lipstick business but I kind of had this feeling that kind of just as in the early 90s when I'd noticed there was a gap in the market for matte lipstick, there was looks there was a gap in the American market for lipstick <laughs> itself. Like it was going away. It was like going into the Smithsonian or something at that point. So uh, that's when I started Lipstick Queen and obviously that was 2006. So I left Estee Lauder. It really was a case of, you know, um, you know, take that you know take this job and you know what um but you know no but in terms of like and I had no backup at that point I really didn't I really did leave it wasn't I didn't leave in a sort of tantrum thing but I really left knowing okay uh this world's not for me you know and and uh and I'm going and I had sort of backup plans for sort of waitressing or whatever I need to do turns out I didn't need to do that because I sold a book very quickly to Simon and Schuster my book Lessons of a Lipstick Queen, and then in the process of writing that, decided, you know what, I'm going to go back into doing my own lipstick business. So basically, Lipstick Queen started in a very small way. The only difference between Lipstick Queen and Poppy, which I'd said, is that I was this time I was a citizen of America, so in a different hemisphere, and obviously had a hell of a lot more ex- experience. So that so Lipstick Queen started in 2011, uh, 2006. I kind of built that business up slowly, starting at Barney's. It really was like kind of like Back to the Future, you know. But this time, um, built that business up slowly until 2011. So 2000, so uh, you know. S- for uh, having great maths, five, five years, years yeah. um, and um, and then an opportunity came where I could sell it. it. wasn't necessarily the right time to sell it to sort of maximise my stake in it, but it was a good opportunity. Came in two thousand eleven where I could sell the brand to a bigger conglomerate or a bigger group. Um, and sort of take a step back from sort of all the kind of like admin side of the business and focus on the creative. Uh, So I made the decision to do that. So in 2011, I sold it to a company called Space Brands and they own uh, Yves Lom, Lipstick Queen, Kevin O'Quan, you know, they've got a number of brands and very. they've also got associations and own in a different company, Marlin and Getz, Diptyque, Byredo. So a really nice, like a mini LVMH yes. portfolio. Not This is not like Dwayne, you know. I mean, Super corporate, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was, so it was a really lovely opportunity to do that, uh, which I did. And then I stayed on with Lipstick Queen um, as sort of creative director in a number of various roles, but, as, but not in the day-to-day from 2011 to 2017 when I... I decided that um, I wanted to go back out on my own again. Lipstick Queen, I left it in good hands. It had had some big hits like Frog Prince, my green that turned – the Frog Prince lipstick was the, this green I did that turned pink when you put it on and that had been enormous. Other products of mine in Lipstick Queen that had been just global hits and so I kind of felt like, okay, Lipstick Queen's in good hands. I want to get I – I want to be able to be free to really – now, you know, finance my own ideas and have no one, really have no one to report sure. to but the customer now. And so that's, and that's what Femme de Poppy is, my latest brand. It's, it's me unplugged. <laughs> and you just launched Femme de Poppy this I past just, March. I mean, I wouldn't even call it launch. I mean, it was kind of like, like in sense of like, it's such a, it's one of those things that, you know, you never know, I might be doing a TED talk on, 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 on it in retrospect, but it sounds pretty weird. No, I, I really, what I've really done is I've sort of put it out there in its most organic form. So I've put it out there in March by meaning that the lipsticks went into Barney's, right? But I haven't really promoted them yet. So it's it's been six months of a very kind of what I would call a very intimate experience because when you do something like that, 
you know, you're not pushing it, you're not pushing it on your Instagram, you're not pushing it on this, you're not pushing it, you're not doing posters, you're not making the launch the story. You're kind of putting it out there and sort of like whispering it, you know, kind of one person tells one person tells another person. You as an as as the entrepreneur and the CEO and everything of the company at this point, you really get an understanding of what you're dealing with without promotion. And then you start to see what promotion works and what, you know, rather than sort of throwing jelly at the wall, like let's just do it. so. So uh, because I'm on such a limited budget, because I, I chose not to have investors for this brand, like I really chose to to have a much more limited budget, but 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 not to have investment in the early stages of it. Um, you know, it really has helped me to spend my money as I now start talking about it and start explaining what I'm doing and like the curtain's starting to come up. It's like, it's almost like the show, the show is almost yes. ready, you know, um, and the curtain's sort of coming up. And but what that means is I'm starting now like to talk to press about it. I'm starting to promote it. I'm starting to, um, and now I really have an understanding of the first five shades, which are out there because there are five shades and five what very. What has the response been? Uh, the response has been incredible in terms of as soon as anyone hears about it, like it's, there's nothing when no one hears about it, which is, you know, which is like when you're not promoting something, that's the case. But from a point of view of the feasibility, feasibility and, and as my own investor, as soon as it's touched with any anything in the press or anything like that, people are just fascinated with it. So, and, and you, you never know that until you see that. Like sometimes you can come out with something with a very big budget, push it, and there's no, there's no, it's like a ping pong match and there's no ping pong back. So I'm very, very pleased with the sort of very early, early signs. So, uh, but it has, it's, it's pretty hard though. It's, it's hard to sort of let something, especially in a time when everybody's shouting at the customer from every omni-platform possible angle. It's hard to sort of like come out and be really quiet. <laughs> you know, you feel like a real loser. <laughs> well, no, you're obviously not a loser. I want to hear more about this Poppy Unplugged now because you came in here ready to roll with. Ready to rumble. Ready to rumble. And so much of what you've learned in the corporate world and through yes. your experience in beauty. And now you've been able to, you know, not rely on investors or, <laughs> or a big brand. So what have you learned along the way and what are you ready to share with the world? I guess what I'm really ready to share with the world, and it's something that I really sort of suspected as a teenager, you know, beauty standards and everything that you see as what we are being told is beautiful and desirable and aspiration, aspirational. You know, they're not, I've always thought, I mean, we all know that they're an illusion and that it's exploitative. Like we all know those kind of things. But I always thought they were coming from some sort of authority. I kind of always thought that behind the curtain, do you know what I mean? That, that there was a real authority. Like the Wizard real, of Oz. Yes. Yeah. You know, that there was a real authority. And the more that I have, you know, gone into the industry and remained, I've almost been like my own experiment. Like, can you go into the industry and not be in any way, shape or form the standardised idea of what you're supposed to be in your decorum, in your look, in your, you know, can you kind of like, like, and to under, to see whether or not those beauty standards that are out there come from a place of authority or not. Instead, what I've really found is that the beauty standards that we see and we accept are really much more to do with controlling women's idea of beauty than actually showing women how to be beautiful, you know, because there are so many more ways than the ways that we're showed to be, to experience being a beautiful person, you know, kind of you can have all sorts there. Physical beauty is just one way and it's really not the most lasting way. There are so many other ways to be incredibly beautiful in different ways as well. Um, and I think what I've really learned is that the beauty industry is actually, it seems like an ogre, like a big beast, but actually it's quite like you, you tap it and it's just actually quite, it's actually quite a timid because the customer really, as much as they, you know, people may not want to accept it, the customer really is in charge with this. Like kind of if, if women wanted to rise up around the idea of anti-aging, I mean, the fact that the sort of the beauty industry has made a term like anti-aging 
seem innocuous when it's not because when you really think about it, the only possible way to anti-age is to die. <laughs> it's pretty hard to live and not age. You know? true. And half of the world's population, I know it's happening with men now more too, but half of the world's population is insidiously told that they've got to try and do something that's impossible not to do, which is age. And so that's just in one example of like if women, you know, like they kind of, we, we just let the beauty industry bully us into this stuff. But kind of the truth is, is if to turn around and face them, there's nothing, if you turn around and face them like any bully, there's nothing there. They would just go, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know. So what I guess I've learned is that there is room and scope and possibility and I think necessity for a revolution, and I don't just mean like gender fluidity, I'm talking about a revolution of what expectations are put on women and now men in terms of what constitutes beauty and it being all based around the idea that it's in your youth because it's not. Up next, possible versus probable, the power and joy of letting go of results and a surprise. A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an Entreprenista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search Entreprenistas. We really wanted to create a community for Entreprenistas to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed. It's going to be an exciting 2019, and we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. Poppy, when you launched your second company, Lipstick Queen, it was right around the time when social media really was first getting started, 2006, 2007. Mm -hmm. Were you on the forefront of social with this brand? I'm going to give you such an unusual answer. that So no, not at all. In the sense that I've never really, really believed or made it a goal of mine to generate social media. What I've always made it a goal, and this is where social media has benefited me, is to generate such original products that they are likely to actually attract. So, so rather than generate, my, my aim is always to attract social media versus generate it. So in answer to your question, I've never been on the forefront of building followers and tagging and doing, you know, like kind of actively, but like, for example, the lipstick frog prints, right, the green with that turned pink, you know, it comes from you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so, for example, that lipstick became the number one selling lipstick in Ulta, which is a massive battleground for social media beauty, you know, it became the number one sun lipstick in Ulta for a long, long time. And that was without me actually generating social media, but the product generated. So I can, so you, so I do, I understand I need social media. I just am very reluctant to be the one generating it. I feel like if I'm doing my job properly, it should be doing itself. People will want to share your product and talk about it. Exactly. I don't believe in pushing at people. I really, I just don't believe, I believe, you know, that really in putting all the focus into the originality of the idea and going from there. Having good product sells and gets (laughs) people to to share for sure. It's an old-fashioned way of doing things, but I think, you know, I think in terms of, you know, social media is definitely something that has changed mm-hmm. has changed the way that the customer relates to beauty products. But it really, you know, I, I really, it's it has also just become another form of advertising sure. as well. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it absolutely. You know, it, it's is. moved from being a voice to to a vehicle. But if yeah. you can be a brand where you are genuinely connecting with your consumers and providing customers, providing value to them, sure. that's where you can well, definitely Well, I out. mean, I've dipped in a bit. Like my Instagram, the Femme to Poppy Instagram, I mean, it, surprisingly I've done something. It's hard to believe how radical it is even though it's so small. Um, the photographs that I've started putting on there um, are photographs of models with my lipsticks, which I've never really used for, only their lips. So I don't show a full face. I never sort of show an idea of what a beautiful – I don't call it out, but there's no retouching. So there are all flaws, wrinkles. I don't get women who have had surgically altered lips. I've got women who are in their 60s on there. You know, So even that, just the naturalness – I mean, they're beautiful photographs, but as soon as you look at them, you see, hang on, this is 
they almost look old fashioned because there's not that sort of pornographic perfection. Mm-hmm. That the retouching, it, yeah, the that, retouching yeah. and the you know the, you know on, on the lips. I mean, you look at anyone from Chanel to whatever, you know, their Instagram in particular. There's this kind of pornification of the lipstick where it's always at an angle that's kind of off putting, and you know. So I kind of like so 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 in my own way. I mean, I'm gear like whatever I do in social media. I myself am all, always want to do it in a way where it's um, no, where it's not about standardized beauty. Yeah. So I feel like you've just been on the go for all of these years, working so hard. How do you take care of yourself and take take care of Poppy? <clears throat> well, it's I think you know if, for one thing when you really love what you do, you know I have, I mean I I had such an unusual story in the sense that you don't not many people sort of spring out of high school and kind of immediately get the attention of the country, you know, for their first idea. You know, I mean that. That was amazing. I mean, it, it got very hard. I'm not in, not in any way, shape, or form did I have an easy story, but having understood straight away that things that aren't probable can be possible. I mean, that's just given me an energy that I feel so. I mean, it makes me want to cry. I just feel so privileged to have. I mean, I think I'd probably be. And it's not about the money. I mean, I, there are a lot of people that have made a lot more money than me. A lot of people, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the privilege of having had. My first idea being said, like the, the, the universe saying, yes, that's a good yeah. idea back. Um, even when I've had so many challenges, so much hardship and even so much illness ultimately mm-hmm. because I got to a point where I, like so many women, um, you know, got a chronic autoimmune issue and led to, you know, terrible fatigue and all sorts of, you know, massive dietary changes, all those kind of stuff. Um, even with that, you know, had I, you know, knowing that knowing that the probable is possible isn't always, you know, that the that the possible isn't always probable, you know, and really understanding that it's given me a certain sort of an energy that I think is, is I'm very lucky to have. Um, but it's been about keeping that and fostering it. Um, how I sort of really, I really have to. I really have to the way that in, in the way that I really do it is to sort of understand that. Success and failure are both illusions, you know, like kind of there's no such thing as total success, like this place you get to where it's just success. And there's no such thing as total failure. Actually, there's a very good saying where it's um, there's not, the saying is there's no such thing as a saint without a past and a sinner without a future, meaning these binary constructs of success, failure, right, wrong, good, bad, like realising that they really, that really the, the more you get away from that, you know, the more you realise like how easy it is to take risks when you take out the idea of success and failure, when you kind of take out the idea that kind of like there's this place of success and this place of failure, there's all sorts of iterations mm-hmm. of both of that. Nothing is one way or the other for anyone. It just gives you a lot more courage. Sure. I, that makes complete sense <laughs> to me. What is your typical day like now? Um, I mean, I don't really have such a thing as a typical day, but I, you know, it's basically a combination of, um, you know, it's almost, I'm probably more these days more have a typical day that's more like an artist than a business person. Back in times, other times when I've had more structure, it's been more like to be go into the office, have stuff. I don't, at the moment I'm operating very independently. So I kind of spread my time out between going to labs and product development. So in any given day, there'll be some product development work, some um, kind of admin work, some creative work and some kind of promotional work, you know, but but in terms of as to what form that and some work for the future, like, I mean, I have to say, like, it's funny because in my bag um, where I'm going after this is to, um, I've started... Um, I've started doing some paintings related to lipstick. So so I'm going to the New York Art Studio after this to have a private tutorial in painting. So on any given day, I'm sort of doing something that relates to the past, something that relates to the present, something relates to the future. How do you keep that all straight (laughs) and managing? Well, you know, I I don't have kids, you know. I mean, I I really made the decision, um, you know, that kind of I couldn't do both. I couldn't put everything I had into being a sort of self... 
you know, reach my own potential as a, as an entrepreneur and have children. I could, I didn't have the energy to do both well. And so I really sort of made that choice. Um, but I, you know, so I, I, I don't know, I, I couldn't, I don't know how women do this sort of thing. When I see other female entrepreneurs and they have kids and, and husbands, <laughs> both of them, you know, it's like, I, you know, like I, um, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, like the reason why, like the, re, the reason I have to say to, you know, the reason why is because you know I've made the I've made the choices I'm not a superwoman a superwoman would be doing it all. I'm not doing it all I'm just doing one part as best I can <laughs> that's so interesting was there a certain point in your life when you thought you know I have to make the decision now if I want yeah have a family absolutely or... there was a point where I kind of like really realized that both ways in all honesty for a, a person like me not having kids and having kids both ways felt like there was loss involved. One, you know, like the loss of not having kids and not having that experience or the loss of the autonomy to see what was in me as a real business woman, a self-employed. So, you know, like kind of like, like kind of, so I, I sort of had to come to terms with it. It took me many years to come to terms with which on, on my kind of deathbed, which one, would I really, do I really feel, you know, was the loss that I could cope with? And the thing is, is I feel like there are so many, you know, there are, I don't believe that being a mother is necessarily has to be, you know, sort of biological. So I'm not somebody that feels that that's, so I don't feel that it was a, it was, I don't feel it was a choice about whether I'm going to have the maternal experience mm-hmm. in some way in my life. It was just a choice whether I'm going to have my own children. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And you were mentioning before that you now mentor a lot of women. I do. I, or women and oh, I men. Mean. Yeah, you know, I at any given stage, it's like a bit like, um, you know, uh, that story, Oliver Twist, you know, the Fagin and the Lost mm. Boys. Like because what happens is people tend to find me who sort of relate to my sort of, you know, rags, you know, sort of like kind of like my non sort of Ivy League background. Um, and they seek me out and say, how did you do it? And then you, often I will end up taking on these people. And at any given time, there's about 10 or 15 different people in my life who I'm kind of unofficially, you know, mentoring in their in their development. And, um, and also I do plan ultimately, my ultimate goal is to really try to influence high school curriculum mm. around that being the place where you need to teach entrepreneurship. So rather than it being something that's taught at business school, something that's taught at high school. I couldn't agree more so, with that. So ultimately what I'm hoping to do is make enough money that um, that I feel completely set up in terms of and able to devote the second half of my life to really changing what's taught at high school. I love that. Do you feel, though, that people are just born entrepreneurs, that you can't teach it? Like you can teach the hard skills of what you need to do. But I do you think, feel it's- I, I tell you what I think, you know, I think that the people who are born entrepreneurs are usually not born into privilege. I don't think privilege and entrepreneurship necessarily, you know, go together so well. The people that I seem to see that struggle with entrepreneurship are ones that are coming from more of a place of privilege. So I think there is an entrepreneur in any struggle, put it that way. And you have to just figure out how to how to make it yeah. and how to make something and happen. And it's really, you know, it's really about it's really is about you know long distance running. Mm-hmm. It's not about it's not about sudden spurts of brilliance. It's actually much more to do with and also especially as a woman being able to accept. Like I try to say to myself, just do the best you can on any given day, mm-hmm. not the best you can, because some best. Some days the best I can is amazing. I amaze myself. Some days the best I can is just like really answering two emails. You know what I mean? Like 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 allowing yourself the ebbs and flows of what your best is yep. and letting yourself have days where your best is lower than other days, but Absolutely. that's good enough. <laughs> I say all the time, I feel like I'm talking to myself right now, I say all you can do is the best you can do each day. Exactly. That's what I say over and over again. Exactly. I'm totally on the exactly. same and wavelength. The, and, the, and the joy that you can have when you really let go of results. It doesn't mean that you don't hope for good results with what you're doing or wish for an outcome. But when you really, really kind of like just accept 
that kind of like the outcome is really the least, like that part is, is up to the universe, but the part that you really enjoy is like just doing it your way. Mm. And, and sort of I guess I've always had the attitude, even as a little girl, that I'd sort of like rather fail on my terms than succeed on others. Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on Entrepreneurship Podcast. My last question for you is, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? It really means never, ever needing, never getting into the trap of feeling that you need somebody else's permission to be in business, you know, because it's very easy to think that kind of like, well, I need men's permission if I'm a woman or if I'm not educated, I need the, you know, that really the only permission you need is if you're willing to try it and if you really are willing to kind of stick with it and do the grunt work. You don't need permission from any outside body. It's the you need to give yourself permission to do it. Oh my gosh, I love that. Well, where can everyone find you and follow <laughs> you? And you know, now that you are doing some promotion for the new business, slowly, we do, sure, we do slowly. have to talk about it. A we little, do. So. I know. I know. Like, I know. My, you know, like I, I forget that I'm in a, that I that I'm not actually in a, in a public service. I'm actually in business. But uh, yes. Um, so it's, the new brand is Femme de Poppy, and it's kind of based on the idea of like Joan of Arc or Helen of Troy. So Femme de Poppy. So it's the idea of very much the self-actualized woman. Um, and it's at this point you can follow me on Instagram at Femme de Poppy. I uh, also have a wonderful website called femdepoppy.com where you can sign up for the newsletter where I'm discussing all these sorts of issues all the time. I will be. Um, and, yeah, so that's the best way to – and to sort of look out for me because I have a number of inventions that I was talking oh, to yes. you before. We're going to have to have you come back on <laughs> in next year for uh, – a whole nother uh, whole episode. Nother episode. Yes. So, so I've got. So basically, my goal now is to you know really be as my my the role model that I've always had, and it sounds ridiculous, but it's just so true. Is um, Willy Wonka, like kind of to just not not the Disney idea, but the role doll idea of Willy Wonka. So basically, my job now is to surprise, delight, entertain, and educate, and that's what I plan on doing. Well, before we end, we have a surprise for you <laughs> if you look to your seat down on the left there we yes. have a nice little oh my entrepreneur bag for oh, you and Adele wow. is bringing over your final surprise oh my god thank you so I love this I'm going to proudly wear yes. it thank you oh thank you so much thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the show and thank until you, next time you. I'm Stephanie and this was the best business meeting I've ever had <laughs> Thanks for listening. 